the man whose sin is forgiven, whose transgression is covered, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. This is where the Lord also calls us. That's why we confess our sins, so that he might bless us through Jesus Christ. Christ has come. He's taken our sins, has nailed them to the cross. That's our hope and our comfort as we come to worship God this morning. Let us then open the Word of God that He might teach us. Our scripture reading this morning comes from uh, two places. First in 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 8. Second Kings 8, verses 1 through 15. 2 Kings 8, verse 1. Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines for seven years. And at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him, So the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields, from the day that she left the land until now. Now Elisha came to Damascus. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And when it was told him, The man of God has come here, the king said to Hazael, Take a present with you, and go to meet the man of God, and inquire of the Lord through him, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? So Hazael went to meet him and took a present with him, all kinds of goods of Damascus, forty camels' loads. When he came and stood before him, he said, Your son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? And Elisha said to him, Go, say to him, You shall certainly recover. But the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. And he fixed his gaze and stared at him until he was embarrassed. And the man of God wept. And Hazael said, Why does my Lord weep? He answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses, and you will kill their young men with the sword, and dash in pieces their little ones, and rip open their pregnant women. And Hazael said, What is your servant, who is but a dog, that he should do this great thing? Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. Then he departed from Elisha and came to his master, who said to him, What did Elisha say to you? And he answered, He told me that you would certainly recover. But the next day he took the bedcloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face till he died, and Hazael became king in his place. 
so far from 2 Kings. Let's also turn forward to the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 23. beginning in verse 37 through chapter 24, verse 28. Matthew 23, verse 37. These are the words of the Lord Jesus. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, Look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, Look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So far from the Word of God. 
As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 74, stanzas 1 through 3 and 11 through 13. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, in this chapter here in 2 Kings 8, the book of Kings begins to take a turn for the worse. The next chapter is really all the way to the end of 2 Kings. They show a rapidly deteriorating situation in Israel and the beginning of all of God's judgments. Uh, We've been warned as we've been working through the book of Kings, we've been warned about that for many, uh, on many occasions, uh, all the way back already to Elijah's days. If you remember Elijah ministering to, uh, to Ahab and to Jezebel, to the people of Israel in those days, already then he was warning them, judgment is coming. Well, in this chapter, it's finally on the horizon. Now, I want to acknowledge from the outset then that that makes the book of Kings or this place in the book of Kings a dark place for us to have to be. It's a dark time. They were terrible days. I'm sure you thought that also as you were uh, reading along. And so some of us might wonder, why do we have to be here? Why do we have to be in this part of Second Kings, it's so dark, there's so much uh, violence, so much evil, uh, and there are much nicer places to be in Scripture. Do we have to be here? Well, we want to remember that these chapters, like all of Scripture, were also written for us. Uh, they are not nice chapters, uh, but they are chapters that we need to know and need to dwell on and understand very well. They show us something of what the judgment of God looks like. And it's a judgment that we need to understand and take to heart. As we do that, we should also remember Elisha. We've seen this before. Elisha is a picture and a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The Jews themselves understood this uh, since ancient times. They they saw Elijah uh, was a, a foreshadowing of the Elijah to come which we learn in the New Testament is John the Baptist. And that means that his successor, Elisha, was a uh, a foreshadowing of the Christ, the Messiah. The Jews understood this since ancient times, and that means uh, that we want to pay close attention to Elisha's ministry because it gives us a picture of the ministry of Christ. We saw this right from the beginning of Elisha's ministry as well. It's a double-sided ministry. In Elisha's life, he, he, brings, he gives life to the newborn church. We see him sustaining the church, you know, uh, raising up axe heads and, and things like that, caring for the church. And yet it's also a ministry of death, right from the very beginning. You think of the 40 boys from Bethel uh, whom, God, whom Elisha cursed, and, and two bears came and mauled those children. It's a ministry of death just as much as it's a ministry of life. It's a ministry of life to those whom God is saving and of death to those who are perishing. You think of the words of the Apostle Paul uh, who describes the gospel in exactly the same terms. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life. To life. Uh, so is the ministry of Elisha. Indeed, so is the ministry of the Lord Jesus. He says so himself in Matthew 10. He says, 
Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. The Lord Jesus came to deal with sin. And when you deal with sin, there's going to be an uproar. There is a breakdown in peace. The gospel of Christ divides between those who are being saved and those who are perishing. It brings life to those who are being saved. It brings death to those who are perishing. Now, facing that can make us uncomfortable because uh, we love, uh, rightly, we love to highlight the way that the gospel brings life to the world. We want the whole world to see that. Uh, Turn to Jesus Christ and you will find life. And uh, especially in the modern Western church, that makes us very uncomfortable with the other side of Christ's ministry. And that other side, if you, if you count just the number of verses, the, the darker side of Christ's ministry receives just as much attention in the Gospels as the fact that His ministry brings life. It is also a ministry of death and judgment to those who are unrepentant. So, having said that, then we do well to, to look closely and carefully at Elisha's uh, ministry because it's a graphic picture of the Lord Jesus' ministry. And by looking at Him, we will learn about our Savior. Uh, just as we rejoice, as we have many times, as we saw Elisha bringing life and restoration to the church, so we also should tremble when we see Him heralding death and judgment. You cannot have half of the prophet, neither of Elisha nor of the Lord Jesus. And we see both sides of this ministry already in in this chapter. If you look at the first part of chapter 8, the story of the Shunammite woman, you see again how uh, what Elisha had done for her ultimately turned again for her good as she received back all of her land. Uh, We see God's grace to one of his people, a member of the church of that day. But then in verses 7 and onwards, we're confronted face-to-face with the other side of Elisha's ministry, a ministry of death to the people of Israel who were under God's judgment. In verse 7, we find Elisha in Damascus. Even just that very fact should, should trouble any reader of the Bible because he's a prophet of God. What's he doing outside of Israel and indeed in the land of Israel's enemies? Now, we don't know why he was there other than God simply wanted him to be there for the king of Syria to be able to find him. And so the king of Syria was sick, and he heard that Elisha was in town, and so he sent his servant Hazael to him with 40 camel loads of all kinds of goods from Damascus. I think all those gifts are mentioned just so we can, we can see what high esteem the king of Syria had for Elisha, and what a contrast, isn't it, for the esteem that Elisha received in Israel. In fact, he even calls himself Elisha's son. I don't know if you noticed that. Uh, Hazael comes to him and says, Your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? So there's a great respect that the king of Syria has for Elisha. Now, Elisha's response is, is troubling. He, he says to Hazael, Go and say to him, You shall surely recover. But the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly not recover. 
Now, there's a bit of a technical issue with the text that uh, some people have pointed out. In Hebrew, the, the phrase to him, where he says, go say to him, that, that word to him happens to be the exact same spelling of the word not. So you, it, it could well be that Elisha is saying, you shall, you shall say, you shall certainly not recover. Uh, that is a possible interpretation. And some people have taken that to say, look, Elisha is not telling a lie. He told Hazel to go tell him you're not going to recover. Uh, and then he affirms that by saying, that's what the Lord has shown me. And that gets us out of a, a bit of a conundrum because we don't like the, the idea of the prophet of God telling a lie. Uh, but I don't think that's the correct approach. Uh, and one reason for that is the Jews, since ancient times, even when they translated their Bible into Greek before the days of the Lord Jesus, they translated that as Elisha saying, you shall certainly, uh, you shall go say to him, you shall certainly recover. So they, they translated that as a lie. Uh, and, and we don't really need to interpret it as dishonesty on Elisha's part. Uh, if you think about it, Ben-Hadad asked, will I recover from this sickness? And as far as that goes, as far as the sickness goes, Elisha's response is yes. Uh, this is not a sickness that will lead to death. Uh, you would recover from this, but here's something he doesn't want Hazael to go and communicate. The reality is you're not going to have the chance to recover. Uh, see, if Hazel had just taken the message back, you shall certainly recover, and had done nothing more, then, then the king would have recovered. And that's the message that Elisha wants him to communicate. You're not going to die from the sickness. You will recover, but I know that you, Hazel, are not going to let him recover. And that's also why then Elisha, after saying that, stares at Hazel. He just gazes at him until it says Hazael was embarrassed. I think the point is, Hazael knew exactly what he was going to do. That's why Elisha's words cut him right to the heart. He says, you shall uh, tell the man he will recover, but I know. He doesn't even say, I know what you're planning. He just looks at him and says, I know he's not going to recover. We can understand Hazael's embarrassment then. Now, it's not clear whether Hazael had the whole thing planned out right from the beginning. Um, he, he certainly plays dumb in this text. He says, uh, who am I that I should do such a thing as this? And maybe he didn't see himself doing this, uh, or at least not in, in this way. Um, it, it could be that the idea never really occurred to Hazael until Elisha had said this. Oftentimes, that's how it happens. We don't know the evil that we're capable of doing until we're right there in the moment and, and we do it. Uh, sometimes we don't plan it until it happens. In any case, then Elisha kept staring at him until he felt embarrassed. And then Elisha started weeping. You can only imagine how uncomfortable Hazael would have, would have felt. Here's this old man, a prophet of God, staring at you and weeping. And so he asked him, why does my Lord weep? Again, it's hard to see through Hazael. Is he being sincere or does he, does he know exactly what, what Elisha's thinking? And Elisha answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses. You will kill their young men with the sword and dash in pieces their little ones and rip open their pregnant women. And brothers and sisters, that's why I said at the beginning of this sermon, these are dark 
days that we're entering here in, in the history of Israel. These things really did happen exactly as Elisha said. There's records from the, the Syrian side as well. And before too long, it would even happen from uh, on, on the part of the kings of Israel themselves against their own people uh, doing these kinds of evil things. They were horrible, dark times. And they were part of God's judgment. That's the hard thing to swallow. These dark days were God's judgment against Israel. Now, the thing that that struck me and that I I hope you would also pay attention to uh, is that Elisha, the prophet of God, the foreshadower also of Christ, as we saw, he weeps at the coming judgment. We can learn something really important about God from that. Uh, We can't fathom the the inner workings of God, uh, how God's perfect justice and judgment come together with God's grief and God's mercy. Uh, But we recognize that this is the way that God is. When we sin and when we abandon God, there's no alternative for God but to punish that sin. That's what we see clearly in this text. And yet, He does not delight in punishing it. Ezekiel 33, verse 11, the Lord says, Say to them, as as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? That's hard. That's hard for us to to wrap our minds around. How does does God think? In our minds, we think that if, if God doesn't want to punish... Uh, then couldn't he just not punish, right? Why would God do what he hates to do, what he does not want to do? And yet, that is God. He is bound by his absolute and perfect justice, even when he feels anguish at carrying that justice out. Uh, Someday, perhaps, we'll understand how that works, perhaps in eternity, uh, but we must recognize that to be true. God Judges, he must judge, and yet he does not delight in judging. Now, God had warned Israel that these days would come if they abandoned him. Uh, God had warned Ahab over and over that his line would be cut off if he did not repent. And, And it had gone on for year after year. And now when that time comes, we still find that God's prophet weeps at the thought of God's judgment. And I emphasize that because it is a terrible judgment. Uh, it's, it's a horrible thing that we, that we read about. And in our minds, we all, we all want to ask, God, is there no other way? And in our minds, we almost want to, to blame God for the way that things turned out. Uh, after all, could God not have forced Israel to repent? He's sovereign, is He not? Why did God let things go this way? Well, there's no way we can answer that question to our satisfaction on this side of eternity. Could God have forced the Israelites and changed their hearts and caused them to repent in order to avoid this horrible judgment? It seems like the answer would be yes. Uh, God is sovereign. God could have done so. Uh, And yet, there's no way we can say why He didn't. That is God's call. We're not in that position The thing that we don't want to do, though, the thing that the temptation that we we want to resist here is to then turn around and blame God 
for the way that things turned out. Because, just because in our minds God theoretically could have forced Israel to repent and, and prevented this judgment, that does not make it God's doing that Israel did not. It was Israel's sin to not repent. Uh, we, don't, we don't know why God does what He does. We don't know the full picture. We're not in a place to make those judgments. But we can know and we do know that God called Israel over and over to repentance. And they didn't repent. And that lack of repentance was their lack of repentance, not, not God's. Uh, God had warned them because God didn't want the judgment to happen. And yet, they did not repent. And so what we see in, this, in, these, in these words to Hazael, uh, in, in this judgment that he is about to inflict, uh, with all of its horror, what we see is that God gives Israel over to the sin that they over and over and over again kept on choosing. Now we want to recognize, of course, that even though God had, had chosen Hazael to be his his horrible tool, the tool in God's hand of judgment, that certainly does not mean that God endorsed everything that Hazael did. It's also important to recognize. In fact, if you go uh, to the prophecy of Amos, uh, that, there's a pro- that's a prophecy against Syria, specifically against Syria, for specifically these evils that they did. It mentions the very same things. Uh, and God then also judged Syria for the horrible things that Syria did to Israel. It was Hazael's own evil and his own bloodthirstiness, his own malice that led him to do the things that he did. Now, God allowed it to happen. God used Hazael as a tool against Israel, but that doesn't ever take Hazael off the hook. It's still his Sin. So there too, uh, we, we ought to resist the inclination to blame God for what sinners do. God used it, but it is their own doing. Uh, and this is often how, how judgment happens. Sin is punished by sin. Uh, sinners are given over to their own sin or to the sin of others. Uh, we cannot hold God responsible again for the evil that exists in our hearts for our own sin. If sinners have mocked God and abandoned Him and gone their own way, God is not obliged to keep them by force from destroying themselves or destroying one another. Sometimes in God's perfect justice, even as God weeps, He nonetheless gives sinners over to their sin. He gives them over to the horrible lusts of their own hearts that ultimately leads them to destroy themselves or destroy one another. He surrenders sinners to the power of sin. And that is the worst judgment for God to unleash us, for God to give us over to our own sin. And so what we want to see in this text then is is the ugliness of sin, the seriousness of God's judgment, and also God's grief at having to let that judgment happen. And I do believe, and I want to insist on this, that Elisha's grief, Elisha's weeping, is very much in keeping with the grief in God's own heart as he surrenders his people to judgment. In fact, you see the same thing in Christ. We saw that in Matthew uh, 23. 
And, and again, we see that Elisha here is a picture of Christ. Uh, we, we sometimes think of the ministry of Christ in such a lopsided way where uh, we, we all remember very well the, the good things that Christ did, the, the blessings that Christ brought, the healing, the times that He healed the, the lepers and the blind and the sick. And those are good things, of course, to remember. Uh, and when you see them in Elisha's ministry as well, but we also want to recognize the judgment that is there in Christ's ministry. Even horrible, unspeakable judgment of the kind that you find here at the hands of Hazael. Uh, uh, This is judgment against those who by their own stubborn, unrepentant hearts uh, were perishing. We, We easily overlook those aspects of Christ's ministry, but it's very prominent in, in the Gospels. And we should not overlook it. Uh, the ministry of, uh, of Christ during His years on earth was very much a ministry of life to those who were being saved and a ministry of death to those who were perishing. And you see this especially, I think more than any other Gospel, you see it especially in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, the warnings just become more and more frequent as you get towards the end of the Gospel. In fact, already right from the beginning, in Matthew 4, verse 17, uh, this, here's how Christ's ministry is described. Matthew 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right from the beginning, His message is a message of repentance. Uh, Matthew 8, Jesus healed a centurion. Uh, That's a leader. Think about that from the Israelite perspective. This is a leader of the invading, occupying Roman army, uh, Israel's enemies. Uh, It's a lot like Elisha healing Naaman, the commander of of the army of Syria. He, he, He healed the centurion and he marveled at the man's faith. And he said, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's life to those who are being saved, those many from east to west, and there's judgment to those who are being cast out. Uh, Matthew 10, Jesus warned again, I quoted this earlier, Do not think that I have come to bring, a, bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Uh, Matthew 11, he delivers a warning against the cities of Israel. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works that had been done in you were done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Uh, recognize Tyre and Sidon are cities in, in Syria. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. You see the judgment, and it gets more and more frequent as as the, the gospel progresses. In Matthew 12, he talks about uh, the, the men of Nineveh and the queen of, of the south, that's the queen of Sheba, presumably, uh, rising up and judging the land of Israel uh, and condemning them on the day of judgment. 
Or Matthew 13, he speaks of the kingdom in terms of a field with, with uh, wheat and weeds uh, sown within. And he warns that the day is going to come when those two are separated. And the weeds will be burned in a fiery furnace where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 21, he, uh, he warned that the prostitutes and the tax collectors, who he was always accused of, of, of being too friendly with, uh, he warned that they would enter the kingdom before the religious leaders of Israel. Life to those who are being saved. Judgment to those who are perishing. Uh, in the same chapter, Jesus warned that the kingdom of God will be taken away from Israel and given to a people producing the fruits of the kingdom. In Matthew 22, he talks about he gives the parable of the wedding feast, and all. And if you recall that parable, there were many who were invited to the wedding who didn't come, and they were cast out. He says, in fact, the king ordered his servants to go and destroy them and to burn their city. That's obviously a reference to Jerusalem to burn their city and then invite those on the streets to come to the wedding feast instead. And then you get to Matthew 23 and 24, which we read a small piece of, and it's an entire chapter, two entire chapters of woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, seven times over in Matthew 23. And then Matthew 24, the prophecy of the fall of Jerusalem, uh, which we read together. And there Jesus declares the judgment on that city that was for a long time coming. Just as Elisha uh, gave that same warning in his day, now the Lord Jesus did to Israel as well. Uh, now it's important to recognize when you get to Matthew 24, there's, there's of course many, many interpretations of what exactly is meant, this abomination of desolation and, and so forth. But we want to recognize that Matthew 24 is first of all a, a judgment against Jerusalem. Jesus said that at the beginning of the chapter. I tell you, not one stone will be left on another, referring to the temple. And the disciples asked him, when will this be? And what will be the signs? And then you get uh, Matthew 24. So it, it is a picture of more things to come afterwards, but it is first a picture of, uh, of the judgment on Jerusalem. And that was a horrible, horrible judgment. It's a chapter in, in history in Christian history, in redemptive history, that's very often overlooked. In 70 AD, when the Romans came and and destroyed the city of Jerusalem, this was the fulfillment of Jesus' uh, warnings. And it's it's a horrible judgment that makes Elisha's judgment pale in comparison. When you read the accounts of the siege, uh, and and they're very, very detailed, uh, it was far worse what happened to Jerusalem in that day than what happened to Israel in the days of Hazael. Uh, Jesus himself said so in Matthew 24. He says that there will be such great tribulation on that day, such has not been from the beginning of the world until now, and no, never will be. Uh, nor was it just contained to Jerusalem. It spread out to all of the Jews throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, many of the exact same horrors that, that Hazael performed were also done by the Romans and in greater number and with greater cruelty. Uh, the Lord Jesus cried out, we read it together, Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Uh, the historian uh, Josephus, he was a Jew who lived during the days of Christ or shortly after, uh, he described uh, this entire event, the fall of Jerusalem at the hands of the Romans. 
And, and it's so awful. His account is so awful that it's, it's really unreadable. Uh, you can't get through it without wanting to quit or, or to vomit. It's horrifying. And, and he also said, he's not a, he was not a Christian, but he also said uh, at, at that time, no other city ever suffered such miseries, nor did any age ever breed a generation more fruitful in wickedness than this was from the beginning of the world exactly as the Lord Jesus also had, had declared. And so as we look here uh, at Elisha's ministry, we want to recognize, as, as uncomfortable as it makes us, uh, that this is a, a foreshadowing of the ministry of Christ. Uh, we can and we should rejoice where we see mercies in Elisha's ministry uh, towards the church that, that, Elisha, that God was gathering through Elisha. But we also want to recognize with, with trembling and with humble reverence the seriousness of God's judgments when He gives sinners over to judgment at the hands of other sinners. We see it here in Elisha, and that ought to prepare us to see it also in Christ. And, and it's good that we are horrified by it. We're supposed to be horrified by it. It is Horrifying. It was in Elisha's day. It was all the more in, in, in 70 AD. And again, we, we should resist with all our might the, the impulse to somehow put the blame for all this on God. To say, God, how could you allow such a horrible judgment to happen? Yes, it is God's judgment. But it's a judgment on an unrepentant people whom God called over and over to repentance. It does us no good to suggest that somehow God could have forced things to happen differently. Uh, we don't know whether God uh, could have in God's own perfect uh, justice. Uh, we don't know enough to say that. Our understanding of that is just far too limited. What God calls us to do in His infinite, perfect wisdom is to humble ourselves before His terrible judgments, to recognize the ugliness of our sin and to take seriously his warnings, to recognize that God keeps his word, that he does not warn us for nothing, so that we would then run to him and recognize uh, also in Elisha that he is a God of mercy for those who repent. Uh, we need to remember and, and not forget that hell, hell is real. And God's judgments that happen here on earth like in Elisha's day or in the fall of Jerusalem, those are only foretastes of the horror of hell. And when God calls the world to repentance in Christ, God means it. Uh, There are too many theologians today, uh, as there have been throughout the centuries, uh, who, who understandably but wrongly deny the reality of hell. They, they argue for some, some kind of opportunity for repentance yet in the afterlife. Or, or, or they argue that maybe people will just perish and, and that will be the, the end of it. Uh, but they, they don't reckon with the horror of God's judgment already as we see it here on earth. They're unable to recognize that there was also the just judgment of God. Uh, what we see here on earth gives us a clear picture that God means His words of judgment. He's not giving opportunity for repentance. And that's why He calls us now to repent. That's why God weeps at the thought of judgment. He wouldn't weep if He didn't mean it. God means His words. 
And so we should recognize as we see Elisha weeping that God does not rejoice in handing sinners over to judgment. You see the same thing in Christ as he stood and looked out over Jerusalem 40 years before it was destroyed in Matthew 23. And he cries out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When we look at what happened to the the people of Israel in Elisha's time or in the time of the Lord Jesus or or shortly after, uh, we should tremble at that judgment. But we should also recognize God doesn't just show those things to us so that we would tremble. He shows them to us so that we would run to Him in repentance. Uh, He shows us these things so we would run to the Savior whom He sent. In Elisha's day, the the call was for the people of Israel to humble themselves and to repent before God. And even at that late hour, as Elisha was there warning the people of Israel, even at that hour, there still might have been hope, still opportunity for God to, to mitigate His judgment. And you see that sometimes in the book of Kings. You see that with Hezekiah. There's a warning of judgment. Hezekiah repents. And that judgment is withheld. You see it even with the, the worst king of all, with King Ahab, that there's a moment in his life where he repents in part, and God withholds that judgment. God doesn't warn us simply so that we would tremble, but so that we would ultimately repent. And, and there, were, there were many Israelites in that day too who did repent, who gathered themselves to the growing church under Elisha and were added to the remnant of God's people. And when you consider the fact that Elisha was in Damascus, in, in Syria, uh, you might also observe that uh, from examples like Naaman also, that there were even Syrians who were saved from that judgment, uh, who joined the true people of God, who listened to the prophet whom God had sent. And that's the call of the gospel to us as well. As we reflect on a dark chapter in Israel's history, on God's terrible judgments, uh, let us run to the Savior whom God has sent. Because just as He is a messenger of judgment to those who are perishing, He is a messenger of life and salvation to those who repent. He is a messenger of mercy to those who are being saved. Well, the sins of Canada are also filling to the brim. God warns us in judgment about that as well. Our country murders our children at a rate of 100,000 a year, just as the Israelites offered their children to Molech. And the warnings that God has for our country are just as stark and clear. If the sins of, of that day were so full that they needed to be judged, and if the sins of Jerusalem had reached the brim so that Jerusalem was ripe for judgment, then surely our nation is reaching that point as well. So we should be praying for our nation that there would yet be repentance. Because when God warns us, there's always hope for repentance. We should pray for our nation and we should run to our Savior. In Him and in Him alone, there is hope of life after judgment. Uh, There's hope, even if God forbid that we should be a church that would endure the afflictions, the earthly afflictions that God brings on this country, as the church of Elisha's day also did. 
they too endured the earthly judgment. Yet may we be a church that hopes in God through it so that we may be a voice of life and repentance to those whom God is saving. Pray for this country and let's call ourselves and call the whole world to Christ every single day and with the utmost urgency. Amen.